everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling here with you, and with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Hello. So it's just the two of us today, and we thought we'd take a few minutes and talk about a subject that, uh, for physicians, may be something more common, for APPs less so. And this is going to apply some to nurses and potentially other other healthcare workers as well. I don't I don't have a lot of experience with those areas, but uh, we're going to focus on APPs. Uh, but it, some of this is going to apply around globally as well. And that is the subject of doing a presentation, like at a conference or a meeting. Um, so frequently I get requests from APPs to talk about this uh, because this is something a lot of us don't have experience with. And we don't get a lot taught uh, about how to do this. But I think a lot of people are interested in it. Uh, they just don't know where to begin. Would you say that's fair, Brandon? Well, there are plenty of people who are not interested in it, certainly. But you know, people who are of a, a certain uh, ilk, <laughs> the way they are kind of building their career involves some of these sort of academic activities. Um, yeah, I mean, this is often a slice of that, uh, presenting at, at some sort of event. And I mean, this could include purely local things, you know, you're giving, um, giving a talk at your hospital or something like that, but um, all the way up to... Uh, speaking at like a, a local or regional conference or, or course, and then of course a national or, or international event. Um, there's a sort of, you know, there's a certain um, way that these things work. You know, the whole process of of designing a, a topic, uh, submitting it, and getting it accepted, actually putting it together, and then then of course giving it um, has similarities, I think, with you know other presentations you might give it in life or in your career and uh, uh, in school or things like that. But in some ways it's also kind of unique. Um, and this is, you know, whether it's some kind of clinical topic, whether it's some kind of, um, I don't know, career building or professional sort of thing, um, some kind of a discussion, a round table or, um, you know, posters, abstracts. Again, these are all types of presentation that are kind of unique to I guess not necessarily to medicine, um, maybe the, I don't know, academic like geology world does similar things, but I feel like it's at least somewhat unique. Yeah, I, well, you're, you're right. I think it is, it is somewhat unique to academia. Um, I, I'm sure that there are, you know, non-medical, like you said, geology or marine biology or whatever groups out there who, who do something similar. Um, but I think when we talk about these presentations, you know, I think a lot of people, like you said, are not interested at all. And I think that a lot of that is because they're like, Oh, research. I don't want to do research. Um, and I think maybe people don't understand that these don't have to be research, right? So there are a couple of different ways to do these presentations. And like you said, this could be at your local hospital, like to your group. Um, it could be a guest presentation at a school. Like if you're a you know, PA and maybe your local PA school needs somebody to do a guest talk on a subject maybe that you're in, that you're an expert in. Um, 
all the way up to presenting at a big national international meeting uh, and lots of steps in between. Yeah, so it um, it's in some ways, I mean, I, you could argue it's one of those activities that's kind of internal to the field in the sense that, um, you know, if, if you told your friend who is a, a lawyer or something what you're doing the, uh, next Monday and you say, well, I'm, I'm getting on a plane to cross the country. Um, I have a, a giant poster um, that I've rolled up in a cardboard tube and I, I'm going to fly to this event, um, put, put up my poster and then stand around and tell people about um, this topic, which was like a, some project I did or something that interested me. And then I'm going to fly back. It's all my own dime, of course. Um, they're they're going to be like, uh, well, why? <laughs> like, what, what's the purpose of all this? Uh, does it help you in some way? Are you somehow getting compensated? Um, and I mean, does it help other people? What's the point of it all? Um, and there is answers to some of those questions. But uh, t- to some extent, I guess the answer is just it's, it's one of those things that we do in this field. Yeah, and I do think you're right. I think that is probably unique to healthcare, although I don't know for sure. Um, but I would imagine, just like you said, from people I know that have non-healthcare jobs, if they work in academics, right? So they're an engineer, but they work for a university and they teach and do engineering research, then they do this sort of thing. But if they're just a you know mechanical engineer who works for a company designing machines, they don't really. And I would assume that's true of most professions, right? If you're if you're in some sort of academic field, you do this sort of thing. But if you're not, if you just quote are a worker bee, um, then you you don't. But I don't think that's as true in healthcare because I know people who are in private practice who aren't in academic medicine at all, who still go to these conferences to keep up with the the latest and greatest, and um, sometimes will do presentations too. Yeah, and I think the, I mean, there's probably a lot you could talk about about why people do any of this stuff, but presumably most people who attend events like this, it's for education and to some extent um, for networking. And the reason people present and kind of, you know, give the content is typically because we there's this idea, which is probably somewhat true and probably somewhat made up, that, um, you know, giving talks and and presentations and things is um, part of the currency of of this field. It's it's a like a resume thing. It's a thing you can say you did, and that it having done that and having done it in various venues and maybe in larger and larger uh, visibility and so on, uh, it says something good about you about your career or something like that. And then eventually, maybe that converts into something that's a little more tangible, like you get a promotion or something, or maybe it doesn't, but we just have internalized the idea that this is um, uh, good for your career somehow. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned a lot of times these people are doing this, like you said, on, on their own dime. Um, not everyone is fortunate to work for a group that gets a large amount of professional development funds for this sort of thing. But I would say that if you're interested in doing this and you don't have that, um, talk to whoever you work for, whether it's your hospital or your group, if you're in a private practice or whatever. Um, I have found a lot of times there are funds available to sort of at least help with this sort of thing. 
even if you don't, even if it's not an expectation of your job, right? It's sort of, a, it's, those of us in academics, it's a little bit of an expectation uh, for some of us that, that you do this sort of thing. Um, but certainly if you're out in the world just doing private practice, it's not. And, um, and so you may not have built in ready-made funds for this. But uh, a lot of times I think, especially if it's a, something that's accepted to anything with some prestige associated with it, you know, a big national organization or an international meeting, um, then a lot of times folks will, will help you get there uh, because they want their name on that too, right? If you work for the University of whatever um, hospital, they want their name on that uh, presentation because it lends some prestige to them. Yeah, it, which just kind of shows that this whole idea that there is uh, value in in doing this uh, is not just on our level, uh, you know, on the level of our employers and institutions and stuff. They also sort of feel that way. And I presume it's the same reason that, you know, Coca-Cola thinks it's worthwhile to put their name on somebody's soccer jersey. It, uh, sort of any visibility is good, you know, in this big world of medicine. You go to a conference and you see a talk by someone who says they're from such and such institution. It kind of puts that name on your radar more, and some part of your brain is thinking, "Hey, you know, this is a place that's doing useful stuff. They got people who are teaching the world, and they're out there as experts, and they must be a must be a pretty solid place." I feel like we're kind of dishing on the entire concept that we're discussing today, but it, you know, these are sort of worthwhile questions because I think it's fair for anyone to ask before they even get into how they do this. Um, you know. Why should they do this? Yeah, well, and it's not—it's not insignificant, especially if you are, uh, especially if you're—you know—if you're out there and you're listening and you're a nurse or you're a respiratory therapist or something, you're—you're you're not making a, a fortune. Um, but even those of us who uh, are up a little bit in the APP or even the physician realm, uh, it's still—it's not insignificant to ask someone to spend. Um, a pretty good amount of money. You know, attending these conferences is usually not cheap, um, traveling to wherever they are. Cause they're usually at, uh, quote destinations, right? Uh, nobody's holding a, a major conference in, um, your local town. They're holding it at a place that people want to go to, you know, Hawaii, uh, California, Florida. Um, so you're potentially gonna have to spend airfare and hotel and the hotels are probably you know, fancy and nice. And, you know, so a lot of, I think it is very realistic to have this conversation because people may say, well, that sounds great. I would like to do that, but I'm not rich. I can't, I can't afford that. How do I do it? So. Yeah. And like you said, there is, a, depending on your position, there is often some maybe compensation to reimburse your expenses and maybe some uh, time you can take to do these things. Um, like I, most positions I've been, there's some continuing education money and you can maybe use some of that for conferences or specific time slash money for like attending conferences. Um, uh, but even if not, you know, it's, it's up to you whether you think it's worthwhile. The last thing I guess I'll, I'll say on, on that is like most of these quote academic activities, which as a rule, uh, require a lot of time and sometimes money and always effort to kind of do these things, whether it's go to a conference, I don't know, do some research, teach something, whatever, write a textbook chapter. Um, it, you always got to put a lot into it. And, you know, as a rule, you're probably not getting that much out of it. Whether it is worth it to you often will depend where you're at in your career as well. So there may be some of these things that you're more willing to do when you're early on, you're kind of building a career or 
quote, a name for yourself, whatever that means to you, <laughs> even if it's just kind of establishing some level of credibility in your own head um, or whatever. Maybe you're actually pursuing, you know, academic promotion or something like that. And then at some point, things that are a lot of effort um, and don't have a whole lot of yield, maybe they're not worth it anymore. And you've done a few talks at conferences. All right, you, you don't need to kind of keep piling these things on just to do them unless there's some, you know, specific thing you really want to get across. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some people genuinely enjoy this sort of work. Um, and I think all, I think everybody that does it enjoys it to a certain degree, right? You wouldn't do it if you hated it. Um, but, but maybe you just, this is really what drives you. And I think that's a very personal thing. Like you said, you have to decide for yourself if it's worth it. Yeah. And, you know, let me be honest, there's probably a little bit of an ego thing to all of this sure. you know, to, to for someone to say, Hey, uh, we think you have good stuff to say. We want, we want you to come to this big event, stand in front of a room full of people and, and tell them about it. Part of you is like, yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into it and talk about how you go about this. So the first step is sort of deciding what you want to do. Because like I said, I mentioned that this doesn't have to be research. You can do, I think these types of presentations generally fall into sort of three categories. And the first would be that presentation of research, right? We did a research study um, and we're going to publish it in a journal, but we also want to present it, our results. Um, that's pretty self, uh, self-explanatory, self right? Yeah, because then the presentation is, is really kind of an afterthought. The, the, the main effort there was that you did a, some significant research right. and the main venue is going to be publication, but... Uh, there's an old rule I heard in academics that if you, if you go to the effort of you know creating something, never just use it for one thing. So absolutely, you're also going to present it at a conference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and not that presenting research data is easy and straightforward. Uh, there's definitely an art to it. Uh, it's one that I I've only done once or twice, so I don't by any means claim to be an expert at it. Um, but I think something that is a little bit more within reach for most of us would be the other two, what I would call the other two main categories, which are general educational presentations, like picking a topic, whether it's a clinical topic or like you said, something about, um, you know, sort of non-clinical, uh, like how to give a presentation, for example, uh, and doing a talk about it or uh, a case report report, right? So you have an interesting case that comes up, something that's sort of different, uh, weird, you don't see very often, uh, and you want to talk about it because it was unique. And I think those are two things that are a little more accessible to the average provider out there. Yeah, because of course, educational stuff anyone could come up with. I mean, it help if you're some kind of recognized expert in the area, but if you could put together a, a good topic and kind of prove that you have good content, um, you just have to kind of sell it to whoever is organizing the conference. And the other things, they all kind of fall into the category of uh, there's kind of a, sh- a strata of quality of quote research or you know things that were worth publishing. Um, if you did some big RCT, then you're certainly going to publish it, and then you might also present it. But then there's there's things that uh, maybe maybe are not considered worth publishing, um, like maybe a case report. Of course, in some cases those are published, but you know a lot of the time. It, maybe it would be in a small journal or briefly at most or, or nowadays not at all anymore or something like a, a QI project that you did. 
you know, some kind of really sort of small scale research is in a way it's research. There's data. It's your, you know, maybe your institutional experience with something. Um, you know, you did some chart reviews. There's like a case series, something like that. Things that you could publish, maybe you will, um, but it's kind of small scale stuff. And traditionally, a good venue for these is presenting it at a conference. You present it as a, a poster or an abstract, um, or there's often some kind of category of presentation at these things for sort of, you know, small research presentations. And in that career building, you know, realm. It, this is often where, you know, trainees, people earlier in their careers, it's a way for them to, to kind of get exposure in, 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 a, in a way, publish, get them to conferences, um, which otherwise uh, they might not have gone to, they might not have had the ability to go to. Maybe if they're presenting, um, their institution will help them get there. And it's kind of a, a stepping stone kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned it helps if you're a, sort of a recognized expert. And I think that sometimes we set the bar for what's an expert a little too high. Uh, and we don't realize when we do have expertise, right? Because there's a lot of things that are sort of niche fields that you may know real well. Uh, and there's not a lot of people who do. And maybe combine that with you have the ability to explain it very well. Uh, and you really become an expert pretty quick. You know, things like neuro, things like oncology, these are not things that everybody deals with on a regular basis. But if you do, you probably understand it better than most um, and can probably give a decent explanation to people who maybe only uh, encounter those things here and there, right? So maybe a, a group of general intensivists would be interested in a talk on how to manage the critically ill cancer patient because they don't see it very often, but you do. Yeah, I mean, the some topics are are niche enough that you can almost create expertise just by um, by giving them. <laughs> In the sense yeah. that uh, the 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 Venn diagram of um, someone who is kind of interested and willing to talk about this, um, so just basically that they're bothering, and then knows something about it. Um, may basically just be you. And it, you may make yourself that expert by, you know, volunteering to do it. Or, you know, it, it kind of builds on itself. So maybe you you write a small article on a topic and then you go to a conference and you and you say, I want to give a talk on this. I wrote, you know, I wrote an article and I have this background in it. And they go, oh, cool, that's a, you know, interesting topic. And then the next conference, you're like, well, I've given a talk on this before. I mean, you're an expert on this now. <laughs> right. You've worked in this area for, you've done a couple things already. Um, that's at least as much expertise as a lot of people have in a lot of small topics. Now you're the guy on that topic. You know, it, it can be as, as sort of as silly as that. Yeah. And you know, when I first got into academic stuff, publishing, talking, presenting, et cetera, um, I had someone who I had happened to randomly meet at a conference and uh, she did a lot of this and we struck up a conversation and I was interested in this and I said sort of, well, how do you, how do you get into this? How do you get started with this? And so she sort of told me the way to, to go about it. And one of the things she said that I thought was really interesting and I have found it to be extremely true is especially in nursing. And I'm, I'm assuming this is true of PAs as well, Brandon. Um, she said, there are so few people out there who do this sort of thing and do it well, if you establish that you're one of those people, you will have to turn away offers left and right. And I found that to be true, right? I, you know, I wrote a thing and people liked it. 
I gave a talk and people liked it. And and I get to the point eventually where I get requests all the time to write something or to give a talk on something. Most of which I have to say no to, I guess either a, I just don't have the interest, right? It's something that somebody's sort of desperately looking for someone and my name is out there. Um, but I'm not really that interested in it. So it's not worth it to me or B I just don't have time for all the stuff that people ask me to do. Yeah. And, um, as we were kind of talking about, as you create a niche for yourself, um, there is increasing room to sort of recycle material to some extent. Not, I mean, not to plagiarize yourself or to be boring, but if you've kind of worked in a certain area a lot, I mean, you don't have to start from scratch when you do have something new. You know the topic, you have some some uh, references, some slides, some pictures, whatever. You can kind of mix and match some things. Um, so it does get easier to some extent. Um, I guess the, the other thing I, I want to say is we're kind of uh, starting to insinuate otherwise a little bit. You don't want to um, kind of game the system so much that you are doing this stuff purely to entertain yourself and it has like no value for the people actually hearing it. And that can happen, I think. You'll see people who, they, they put out a ton of stuff at events and stuff. You always see their names. Um, and it seems like their main the main value they bring to that topic or whatever they're doing is, is just that they do it a lot. It's like they're famous because they're famous, that sort of thing. Um, that's not the really goal. I mean, it is still supposed to be useful for people. Yeah. So if you're, if you're kind of making yourself a, a, an institution in, in a topic or at these events, it should be because you're actually being helpful um, because you know something or again, like you said, because you're particularly good at, at teaching and explaining it. If you don't, have expertise and you're not a very good teacher or speaker, um, I don't know, maybe take your foot off the gas a little bit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, and there certainly are, you know, I've been to conferences where year after year after year, the same person is presenting the same topic. And I go again and go, well, I mean, this is the same stuff they told me last year. This is just this exact same talk as if they've just got this, you know, stump speech, basically like a politician that they give every year at conferences. Um, but I, you know, sometimes have to remind myself that, uh, maybe I'm not their target audience. Maybe right. their target audience is the people who just graduated last year and have never heard this talk before. Um, in which case, yeah, it probably is great that they have a stump speech they could give by heart. Um, because the new grad needs to hear it once and then they move on to something else. Yeah, and you can imagine that the people who are um, organizing these things, it could be very useful for them to say, um, you know, we need something for this spot. Hey, um, you know, what about so-and-so's such-and-such topic? You know, it's always yeah. good. People seem to like it. It's a good niche. Um, or it's, it's, it's at least okay. You know, it's good enough. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I imagine when you're putting a conference together, there is a certain amount of, we have so many spots to fill. Not everything needs to be a home run. Um, you know, some stuff, like you said, it's good enough. Yeah. And you know, how many people are truly gifted, you know, presenters, how many people have something truly novel and fascinating to say, how often are those the same people? I mean, yeah, they're not all going to be winners. Right. So let's talk about how you go about this. And the first step is usually presenting and submitting an abstract. So almost every conference out there will put out what's called a call for abstracts, usually pretty far in advance of their conference. How far in advance sort of depends on how big. If it's a big national, international conference, it's usually a year out. 
Um, local stuff, you may have a little, le- um, uh, you may be able to submit stuff a little closer to the actual event. Um, but, you know, these big conferences like uh, SCCM, AACN, um, the International Society of Heart Lung Transplantation, places like that, you know, they have these committees that pour over thousands of these abstracts. They really need time to sift through them. Yeah, it's really easy to um, underestimate how far in advance this happens and, you know, how early the deadline may be. It can easily be the case that if you're attending a conference and you're thinking, hey, maybe I'll try to present something next year, the deadline for next year could have already passed or it could be like next week. Yeah. So it's not like it's going to be six months from now. We're like on, you know, overlapping, you know, years in advance cycles sometimes. So just go up and basically look what those dates are because you may need to, you know, start planning for like a year farther out than you expected based on what, you know, when it is. Yeah, I've, it's been my experience, like I said, at least with the big conferences, like you said, I'll be at the conference and think, hey, this conference is really good. I should present something next year. Wonder when their abstract deadline is. And it's about a week after I get home. So, you know, if if you really want to be on it, you got to get going like why you're still at the conference. Yeah. Um, so, so they'll put out these calls for abstracts and each one will have, you know, sort of their own unique, um, what they want, right? Um, some places don't want case reports. Some places don't want general education topics. They only want something with some data. Um, other places will say, we're really looking to be educational, so if you have a research study that applies sort of broadly and is educational, great. Uh, but we're really looking for more of the things like uh, pick a topic that people are interested in, teach about it. Um, so figure out sort of what you have to offer, what you want to say, and then find the venue to do it, right? So maybe that's a big national conference. Maybe it's a smaller regional conference. Maybe it's a sort of niche specialty conference, right? So not just... Uh, you know, the American College of Cardiology conference, but you want to really narrow it down into a group that specifically studies, you know, I don't know, diastolic heart failure. Um, so what what are some of the conferences that may pertain to someone who works in critical care? Well, so I think there's obviously the big ones, right? SCCM is a huge one. SCCM, I think they are typically i've i've never presented at sccm so this is all sort of secondhand information but i think they tend to look more for um, new research interesting cases things like that they're not one that i think you could say i want to give a talk about you know afib um if it's not something like well we did a study on the use of amiodarone, repeated amiodarone boluses in AFib, and I've got data to present. I don't think SCCM is really going to be looking for you to just talk on AFib as a topic to let just say, here's how you manage it. Yeah, they may have um, uh, a session like that, but it's probably like by invitation. Right. They would ask you. Right. <laughs> and they, they, you know, they will usually have um, sessions that are in other formats that could be a little closer to that. Things that are more kind of discussion-y, panel-y, kind of uh, cross-talks, people just kind of chatting about things or um, kind of get-togethers. There's kind of a panoply of different formats they have. But yeah, I think SCCM is the organization you and I have been most involved with. And um, I think I like because it's really a purely critical care organization. There are um, 
I think it's fair to say that most of the other critical care organizations slash conferences, and you know, these overlap because usually the big conferences are put on by a big organization. It's not usually for its own sake, although there may be some exceptions. Um, most of the others are kind of critical care slash something else. So you've gone to um, NTI a few times, right? Yeah. So, I was gonna so s- talk about that. Yeah, so I was going to say for nurses and nurse practitioners out there, NTI, which is the National Teaching Institute, is put on by the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. And this is a great place to present, especially if you're just starting out, uh, because they will, they really want teaching topics, right? Um, that are geared towards ICU nurses, ER nurses, and nurse practitioners predominantly. Um, but they want, you know, you can't just say like, um, I want to talk about, you know, vasopressors. They want some sort of spin on it. Something, something that makes your talk unique, uh, but this is a great opportunity to say I, I am a, I'm a real expert in, like I said, maybe the management of the critically ill oncology patient, um, and and I can talk about that, right? So that that's a great this is a great place to put together a talk on general educational type stuff. Yeah, and that, and that that's I think a good one to call out because you hear the word the name NTI, it's not obvious that it's a critical care event, right. but it essentially is, right? It is, or at least yeah. in that realm, yeah. Um, there's, um, uh, the two big sort of pulmonary slash critical care organizations, um, ATS and chest, um, both do their own conferences as well. Uh, I haven't had them as much exposure, uh, partly again, because it's kind of a mix of pulmonary and critical care topics. Um, why that combination? Well, because these organizations are pulmonary slash critical care. Why that? Well, there's whatever historical reasons why those are mixed. Um, but you know, you'd expect more of a, a mix at those kind of things, but there's certainly very large groups and very large, um, events. Yeah. And the other thing you can do is just go out and Google around and see what you can come up with. So one of the very first poster presentations I did, um, probably the, probably the second, second or third one ever was at a little conference. Um, and I can't, Oh man, this is embarrassing. I'm struggling to remember the name of the conference even. Um, but it was for critical care, cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and it has since been absorbed by the society of thoracic surgeons. I think they still do the conference. Uh, but at the time it was just this little group that um, a couple of people who did critical care for specifically for cardiac surgery put together. And it seemed, you know, I had these case reports that I thought were really great and interesting. And like you said, a lot of places, it's hard to publish a case report in a journal. And this place seemed really interested in that sort of thing. And so I did it. And I mean, I bet there were 500 total attendees at the conference, you know, it was very small and, uh, but it was great. It was a great venue to do it and actually gave a podium presentation there a few years later, um, and attended that conference for a number of years while I was working in that world. So you can find these little conferences out there who, that are a little bit more niche that may be perfect for whatever you have. Yeah, these smaller um, kind of local or regional events can be really cool, both for attendees and for presenters. They're just they're kind of less less sort of bloated than the the national events. 
rather than being put on by a national organization, they're usually by, um, sometimes it's a branch of a national organization, mm-hmm. like the local chapter of one of them will put something on on their own. Sometimes it's by a hospital. Um, some big hospitals have a, like a running annual event they'll do. Um, and sometimes it's just kind of by some local group, maybe like a state, uh, you know, whatever, PA organization or critical care group or something. Um, often the focus is more education, like you said. So it's, you know, maybe you get continuing education for all of it. People will go for a day to, to crank through some of the hours they need, things like that. But it's probably local to you unless you travel to somebody else's local event. It's usually affordable. Uh, and they tend to just be a little more informal and um, it can be kind of a good time. Yeah. So you find your call for abstracts at the group or conference or event that you think really works for you. And I think that's key, right? I, I can't emphasize that enough is that, that find what works for you because if you find a group or an event that really fits what you have to say, even if it's small, that's often a lot better than trying to shoot for a big international event that may or may not be interested in what you have to offer. Yeah, there's going to be more competition. It's going to be less likely that kind of what you have to say is going to fit in there. Um, and it could just be a waste of your time. It, like submitting anything that ends up getting rejected. It's a lot of effort. Um, in some cases, it's uh, mutually exclusive. Like you can't submit the same thing to like four places at once. Not always. You know, some people will take whatever repeat topics, but, you know, you are kind of putting it in their hands and you may not hear for a while if it's been accepted and you got to make your own plans. Are you going to go and so on? So, yeah. And that's a good point. A lot of places don't want material that's been presented somewhere else. Now the exception to that often is these general educational topics. Cause like you said there, you might find like the Kentucky chapter of such and such group you spoke and gave a talk on, you know, dysrhythmia management. And then somebody who happens to have a friend in, you know, Kansas and their group says, Hey, that was a good talk. Um, I saw a recording of it. Would you come and give it at our organization's meeting next year? You know, that's frequent, but if you're presenting a case or anything with data, a lot of times places don't want something that's been presented somewhere else already. So like you said, you have to kind of weigh how much effort am I going to put into this and risk not getting accepted? Yeah, and again, it's what what are you trying to get out of it? You know, back to the point of what the, what the point is. Whatever the purpose of this is for you, does it matter if you present it at like the largest possible venue, or do you just want to give it somewhere to an audience that's hopefully somewhat interested and, and go to an interesting conference and and whatever? So, do something that makes sense. Yeah, and I think we we see the same thing in publishing too, right? People want everybody wants to be published in the New England Journal, um, but. To be honest, what you have is probably not something that the New England Journal's interested in because they're big picture, um, and it is probably going to work out much better for you to find a smaller, more niche market that will really appreciate what you have. Yeah, that's the other side of it, right? The more focused, uh, the small, smaller also usually means more focused, um, and a more focused audience is probably going to be more interested and you're just going to get more out of it. Like they, they want to hear what you have to say. The kind of people you meet and networking is more useful and appropriate. It's just like a better fit. Right. So you find your group, you look at their requirements for the abstracts. And like I said, everybody's abstract guidelines will be a little bit different, but for the most part, they want it sort of broken up into 
um, you know, pretty predictable pattern where they want you to describe your topic. And if this is a case, then the interesting aspects of your case, just kind of summarize it in a paragraph. Uh, if this is an educational topic, then, well, what do you hope to what do you hope to teach, right? So this is where you have to have those goals and objectives. And I think to be successful, you really need to understand how to write goals and objectives and not just say things like, well, I want people to understand dysrhythmia management. Yeah, and it, it, you know, this is busy work. Um, it's annoying to have to break these things down into all these little areas. But it is also a good opportunity for you to reflect on what you're trying to achieve here. You may have come in with just a very broad sense for, I don't want to talk about this or that, um, but you need to present something that's more focused. And as we've talked about before, in general, to give any kind of educational presentation or material, all things being equal, the more focused the topic, probably the more useful you can make it. If you're going to come out there and try to say, I'm going to give a 40-minute talk about sepsis, what in God's name are you going to say about sepsis in 40 minutes? Especially that'll be new to people. But if you're going to, you can have some specific topic, which is either something novel, there's new data or a new perspective, or some specific application or use case or you know, new way of thinking about things. That could be really useful. Um, and that's the kind of thing people will want to hear about because they haven't heard it before. Right, right. And I think having goals and objectives like that helps you focus that topic. So not only is it going to get your abstract noticed and potentially accepted, but I think it does help kind of guide your presentation in general, right? What are the three main things I want you to take away from this? And they need to be sort of measurable things, right? Not just understand sepsis, but I want you to understand the utility or lack thereof of trending lactates in the management of the septic shock patient, right? That's something that's very tangible that you can design a talk around. Um, so I think you look at that stuff, um, nerding out a little bit here. You guys know I'm in academics, so I'm going to do a little academic nerding. Bloom's taxonomy, if you Google that, uh, it's this breakdown of, of these things and in order of like lower yield to higher yield outcomes, right? So things at the bottom would be things like recall. At the end of this talk, I want you to be able to recall the, uh, you know, the proper dosage of amiodarone in the management of AFib, right? That's, well, that's pretty basic and pretty easy, right? Um, all the way up to at the end of this, I want you to be able to create a plan for the management of the septic shock patient, well, that, is, that involves a lot more high-level thinking and stuff. And most places that are accepting talks for academic things or these general educational topics, they really want that higher-level stuff, right? They, they don't want you to come in. That recall, that's for students. That's for school. Um, we're talking about professionals, and in many cases, advanced professionals. They want this to be a little bit more engaging and a little bit more... Um, sort of high yield for them. Right. Unless um, it's a very specialized topic so that what's considered basic for a specialist um, may be, you know, new to the general audience. Right. Or um, sometimes there is a, a place for uh, kind of beginner or intro topics um, for, you know, trainees who are going. So like a lot of big events will have a, a regular let's say, um, procedure or like ultrasound course they do. 
or like a, um, like a certification course, like, I don't know, ATLS or something like that, that they run before the conference. Um, you know, that is kind of oriented more towards trainees and people early in their careers who are going to these events. Um, whereas most of the probably general content is, is you know, a little more advanced. It's for people who, you know, they know that stuff and this is more about, you know, stuff that's new or applications and things. Right. Um, so I think that's the other thing is know your audience, right? So what is your, who's your audience? What do they want? And you design your presentation to meet their needs, right? And I think that sometimes we lose sight of that because we get hung up on what we like, what we want. Um, and yeah, I mean, I could get up and talk for 30 minutes about any topic I'm interested in. But at the end of that 30 minutes, is anybody going to be, um, anybody going to be, well, that was helpful or is it going to just be, well, that was interesting, I guess. And I don't really know what I learned. So, yeah. And you know, what's helpful there is to try to convey what it is that you're going to talk about as well. Um, whether it's in the the title or the, the summary or abstract or whatever. So that people who are looking to attend these things know if what you're selling is useful to them. It's the, a useful level. It's not too basic or too advanced. And it's, you know, whatever your subtopic is, is relevant. Because, it, it, I mean, it's very common as an attendee to see, oh, this looks like an interesting talk. And you go and you're like, well, no, it wasn't interesting. I knew all of that or <laughs> right. it was for somebody else or I'm not really sure what they were <laughs> presenting there or whatever. Right, exactly. So I think the other important thing when you're writing an abstract and besides trying to figure out like what does my audience want to hear and how do I achieve that is then you've got to usually in the in the abstract somehow you have to write a paragraph or two uh, or less sometimes describing what it is you're going to say, right? And a lot of times this is, in some cases, so for example, at NTI, you, part of your abstract is little, literally writing what's going to go in the program, right? So when people are looking through this huge catalog of offerings, there's the one paragraph that gets them to go, oh, I want to go to that talk, right? So you think about what's going to hook people to make them want to hear your talk. And a lot of times there's very definite character limits, on these things. So you really have to be able to distill down what you want to say into as few words as possible. Yes. This is where all of your practice on Twitter comes. I was going to say, this is where Twitter is gold, right? Cause uh, you have to learn. And unfortunately, unlike with Twitter, with these, you can't usually just substitute emojis for words to save characters. <laughs> you have to actually, uh, you have to actually think of new words. So I was scrolling through Instagram the other day and came up upon, you know, you get these things that just show up in your feed that you, you're not really sure why, like somebody, some algorithm has decided that you might be interested in this. And one of this that came up was a learn to speak English uh, account. So it was like people who are you know, from another country who are learning English could follow this account. I don't, I don't know why that came up. I feel like my English is pretty good. I don't, I don't know why Instagram <laughs> thinks I need this, but it came up and it kind of caught my eye. And the person who was presenting said, try not to use the word very. And I was like, that's weird. I use the word very a lot. And she gave some examples and said, like, instead of saying very sad, say sorrowful. 
instead of saying very happy, say joyful. And it was just this idea of like looking at vocabulary instead of relying on modifiers to say things, come up with different words. And I think that's one thing that can help you save characters and also make your topic sound more appealing use the get the thesaurus out right look for a different way to say what you're saying in fewer words because in fewer words it probably does save characters but also the fewer words are probably more impactful than just saying like again very sad sorrowful paints a bigger picture right yeah not everyone is is a writer but uh everyone can i think recognize how saying something that is uh potent and comprehensive and says it all and is kind of incisive uh, in a very small amount of space is really a big challenge. Uh, was it Mark Twain said, you know, sorry, I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. Right. So you write your abstract and you send it in and then you wait. Uh, this usually takes, again, depending on the, the length of time out from the call to abstracts to the actual event, or the size of the present, the size of the meeting, uh, it may take several months before you hear back. Um, and so that's the hard part, right? Is you submit it and you go, okay, now what? I'm waiting to see. And so you wait to see if you get accepted. And then you usually get some sort of email that says, hey, we, your thing has been accepted and we'd like you to do a poster presentation, for example, or we'd like you to do a podium presentation. And how you go about doing the next step depends on the size of the venue and depends on what you've been asked to do a poster versus podium. Right. And one subtext here is that, um, there's, you know, a variety of formats at any conference and you probably submitted your application for one of them. I mean, you should choose the one that sounds most useful, appropriate to you. They might have you do something different though. You might have applied for one type of presentation and they say, could you do this other thing instead? Right. And, and a lot of times this is a very flattering thing, right? You've applied for something and they looked at this and go, we think this is much bigger than you're giving yourself credit for. Um, instead of doing a poster, we would like you to do a, a big, you know, 45 minute talk, uh, or something like that. Right. And there, you know, there's some terminology to learn here about kind of what all these different types of talks actually are or look like. If you're not sure, of course, you could you could always ask. You know, a, a plenary means that everyone can go, meaning it's not scheduled at the same time as anything else. Concurrent sessions usually there'll be multiple going on at once, so people can choose which one they want to attend. That's usually like a a lecture. Um, there's kind of a variety of names for for smaller, more discussiony things usually. Um, but you just got to see what, what they're calling what at your event. Yeah. And I think one of the important parts of giving the presentation, we'll kind of get into that here in a second, but I think one of the important parts of giving a presentation is understanding what the audience's expectations of the presentation are and trying to meet that, right? So if you sell this as we're going to have an interactive roundtable discussion on blah, 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 and then you just get up and it's just you talking for 30 minutes. It could be a great 30 minute talk, but you're probably going to get a lot of feedback saying this wasn't very, a very good presentation because it wasn't what they were expecting. Yeah. And the other thing I'll just mention there is that um, because I think it's gotten only more common to do things like that, things that are more based around discussion, Q and a panels, um, sort of debate, um, 
if you're thinking of doing that type of event and you're thinking that it's may just be easier than just presenting something from a stage, um, think again, it's probably five times harder to actually produce a good event that's based around interaction because you can't control everything. Um, and it's so easy to have a, whatever, a, a round table discussion. It's just a lot of kind of dead time, repetition, mumbling, you know, trying to find the best person to talk about a certain thing. It's really hard to do those well. So, um, if you want something easy, just put your, put yourself up there with the microphone. Yeah, exactly. As someone who has been involved in the planning of webinars uh, for a number of different organizations, I can attest to that. Right? You have to find people who are not, if you're going to put a panel together, again, like we said before, some people are very smart and experts on their field, but just can't teach it very well. And you want that rare combination of people who are both, right? So you got to find those people. And if you're going to put a panel together, we got to find several of those people. Um, and if you're relying on questions from the audience, I would say that is a recipe for disaster. Um, because there's nothing worse than saying, okay, we've got this panel together. Who has questions and hearing crickets. So, Anytime I've ever put together a group like this, I've always written a dozen questions of my own so that basically if nobody asks a question, I've got plenty of questions. Um, now, the ideal situation is I don't use any of those, right? I, I open up the floor for questions and people ask questions and maybe they ask the questions I'd already written down. Maybe they asked ones I hadn't thought of, et cetera. But you're right. Putting together a roundtable or a seminar type event is a lot harder than just putting, uh, getting yourself and putting it up in front of people and talking. Yeah, and the other wrinkle these days, especially, is is this going to be a, a virtual event or is it all in person or some kind of a mix? Because um, that, I mean, can totally change the dynamic of it, especially if there is any kind of interaction or engagement. People are always more kind of distant when things are virtual, except when they're not. You know, sometimes it makes it easier to uh, interact or ask a question on whatever, Zoom, than if you had to go up to a microphone in a giant room. Um, but it's also more likely that half your audience is doing laundry while they listen. So Exactly. I think there are definitely, um, it definitely is an art to doing a virtual or an online presentation that is different from doing one live in person, right? Well, live in person, you can be very dynamic. You can walk around the stage and use your body language, et cetera, where you don't get that online. And so it is a lot harder, I think, like you said, to hold people's attention because, uh, I mean, I'm, I've been guilty of that. I'm watching a thing and the, the speaker's not terribly engaging. And I think, well, you know, well, I'm going to keep this on, but, uh, oh, there's this thing I need to do and uh, I'll just multitask. And pretty soon you're doing your other thing exclusively with the speaker in the background, just as if it was, you know, some light jazz in the background while you're working. Yeah, I mean, it makes you realize how many uh, live events uh, were only interesting because you had nothing else to do. Like, you, right, you couldn't right. do your laundry yeah. while you're sitting yeah. in that room. But yeah, I mean, my general rule, and we're all learning this as we go, but um, for a, a virtual presentation is you need to be like 10 times as energetic and engaging than if you were in person. Like, you, maybe a little manic even. You need to like, <laughs> you need to like pour out energy into this because a lot of it is going to be lost in the medium. Um, if you have the same like level of 
energy as if you were speaking in person, it's going to be a dud. Absolutely. So let's talk for a few minutes now about actually giving a presentation. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of nuance here we won't get into, but you know, the first thing I think we need to talk about is the dreaded PowerPoint. We've all been in presentations where the PowerPoint comes up and it is a screen full of words and the speaker simply reads the words to you and you just, it's awful, right? It's so unengaging and you, all you can think is I can read, don't, don't read that to me. And also I've already finished reading it because I can read it to myself faster than you can say the words out loud. Um, so how do you how do you go about giving a good talk? And I think, like you said, with energy, I think the key is visuals, right? Nobody wants to sit and read words off a screen. So use visuals. Graphs are great. Pictures are great. Um, even stock art, something to give people something to look at while they're listening to you rather than reading what you're saying ahead of you. Yeah, there's been a, a kind of a whole movement in the world of education and, and, and lectures and talks, I think, the past five, 10 years in this direction, uh, to moving away from just putting blocks of text on a slide and kind of reading it slash walking people through it and calling it uh, educational, um, because it's clear that that's just not a good way of doing anything. I, I, I take a little bit of a more nuanced view than some people. Some people are like, you know, one word, a slide or like no words or no slides. Or, I mean, there is probably a role for having some content on visuals like slides in a lot of presentations. Um, but it depends on what you're trying to get across. If you have a purely sort of conceptual or kind of motivational topic, yeah. Like what's the point of writing things down for people unless it's just says like hope or something like that. Um, but, you know, if you have something that is a little bit more content-filled and there is some actual, you know, nitty-gritty data and specific, you know, quote, bullet points there, yeah, I think it can be useful to put them down so people don't have to just kind of remember everything you're saying and they know what the important points are, obviously, with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, judicious use there. It's just, you know, if you're getting to the point where you need to put a ton of stuff onto a slide for it to be understandable. You should probably ask whether this is even the right way to teach it. Are you getting to the point more like we were saying, this is more like a, a kind of basic material that they should learn in school or read about in a book or something like that. Cause if you, if you're just up here trying to teach them, you know, 32 bacteria that cause pneumonia or something like that, maybe they should go home and read about it. You know, you are giving a live event. There are certain topics that are well-suited to that. And uh, if there's a ton of detail that needs to be conveyed, this is probably not the best format. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one thing that I have done a lot of times is I will make a PowerPoint that is pretty sparse with words. Um, you know, Again, I think you can say no words, right? Just graphics. Um, not everything has a good graphic, right? I'm not just going to do 25 PowerPoint slides of random pictures that I found that may or may not relate to this. If it's, if I've got a great graph that explains it, fantastic. That's my slide and up no words, right? I'll just talk about the graph. If I don't have a good image, 
Well, then I'm going to put a couple of words up there, but again, keeping them sparse. Uh, but one thing that I have started doing sometimes is I will put an outline together when I make my talk that has more words on it. That's for me basically to like get my thoughts together. And a lot of times even put my references in the outline. So I might make a claim and then put, you know, in parentheses at the end of that outline point, these three references. Yeah. I mean, really a lot of the time people are using slides for their own reference and that's understandable, but maybe you should just practice it. more. Yeah. Well, and then I will, what I was going to say is I will take that outline kind of clean it up a little bit and give it out as a handout. And at the beginning of the talk, I'll say, Hey, listen, here's this handout. That's got a lot of the stuff I'm going to say on it. You don't need to read it and follow along. It's for you to take home. The slides are pretty sparse, but I don't want you scribbling everything I say down, right? Because I think that's the downside is when you have a slide deck with very few words on it, then people feel the need to write a lot of notes for fear that they're not going to remember it. And then they're not really listening to you. They're just writing things down furiously. So splitting the difference or giving them a handout that has more information and maybe even where to go to get more, uh, I think is helpful in that they're not so panicked about like, well, here's a slide that has one word on it, bacteria, you know, and now I've got to write all the stuff down that he said. Um, well, no, here's something that's got more about what I said. You don't have to worry about scribbling everything down furiously. Yeah. And you know, the way that can really help you get this right, especially if you don't do a ton of this. And even if you do, because, um, you know, a new venue in a new format is still going to be novel in some ways is, is to practice. Absolutely. Give your talk in the way that you imagined it um, and see how it goes. So if it's um, a virtual event, record yourself as if you would be giving it into your computer or something and then see how it looks. You know, the, the, are you appearing as a talking head or is it just your slides? Is that a good mix of visuals? You know, if you have very sparse slides and it's a virtual event, what are people looking at otherwise? You know, it's not like a TED talk where they have you on stage to stare at. Um, maybe you need a little bit more for them to, to look at. Otherwise, they're looking at something else in their room. Um, you know, is the pace right? Is the energy right? And then, of course, the content. If it's a live event, give it to somebody. Maybe still record it. Um, you know, and look at how that goes. And then not only are you honing your material and getting really familiar with it, which is like a minimum for you to present it well, but you're, you're dialing in these aspects of how you do it. How much do you want to put on your slides? How fast do you want to go? Are you even including certain content that just doesn't fit well, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. I think you practicing it cannot be overstated, um, right? I think a lot of people think, well, I can just get up and give this talk off of my slides, right? And one of the reference, one of the things that I would, resources, I guess, that I would recommend to you is a guy named Ross Fisher. Um, Ross is a pediatric surgeon in the UK, but he gives a lot of presentations, and he actually does a really nice TED talk on how to give a presentation. Um, and we'll link to his website. He has a website all about giving presentations that's really geared towards people in medicine. Uh, but one of the things Ross said to me when I I met him over Twitter when I first started doing these things was, you should be able to give your talk if the power goes out and you have no way to show your slides. Um, and I think that that practice is the key to that, right? You've, you've practiced it so much, you know the material so well that if the power went out and you could not show your PowerPoint slides, you could still stand up in front of these people and talk. Now, are you going to lose some impact for the lack of visuals? Sure. But it's not, you're not using the slides as a crutch to 
remember what you're going to say. Yeah. If, if you're thinking I can get up here without practice and present off my slides. Yeah, you can, <laughs> but it's not going to be good. Right. That's how you get these presentations that are slow and boring and stuttering and all that. Right. Stuff. And the, the ones where that have a million words per slide, because you'll find out that if you put three or four words up there and you don't know your material, those three or four words are not going to be helpful for you. You're not going to remember what was I going to say on this slide, right? So you have to put it up there and read it. Yeah. You, you, people don't want to feel like you're encountering these slides for the first time or like the second time. Right. <laughs> you know, you, Oh, it's this slide. Uh, let's see what this says. The other thing I would say with regards to practice is if you have never given this presentation or any presentation, really, if you've never given a presentation before to a large audience, um, give it to a small audience first, right? One of the very first podium presentations I gave was at NTI and the first session was over 500 people. Um, it's panic inducing, now, luckily, I had had some people that I knew who had done this before who said, you cannot stand up on the stage at NTI and for the first time give a presentation. And so I gave it, I started with giving it to 10 people who worked in my ICU. And then I gave it hospital-wide, right? We put up some flyers and booked the auditorium and I gave it to, I don't know, 50 people who showed up there. And so by the time I got to... New Orleans and got up on the stage in front of 500, I had given this before rooms of people before it felt a lot more comfortable. And I started out specifically with people who I knew who I could trust would give me feedback, but also would be nice, right? You know, they're friends of mine, so they're going to build you up a little bit. Um, but, you know, practice that in smaller venues, even if it's not a formal thing. Like I said, just offer it at your hospital for free. Um, people can come and hear your talk as a way to practice it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you get as you practice all the way from, you know, my first things will be just blind reading through something to nobody um, and then maybe record it myself. You know, most computers, if you're reading off your slides, it has like um, some kind of uh, recording uh, on Mac. There's a photo booth. You could take a video just out of the front facing camera and it's a really quick way to record yourself all the way up to doing the small groups and stuff. Um, part of it is time. How long is it going to take you to present? You have a certain time limit. You should always aim to come under it because then you have some buffer and uh, you'd never want to go over. But I, haven't, I never have any idea how long something takes until I go through it. It's so usually too long. Yeah. So then as you iterate through your practice, you start to dial that in a little bit. And the other thing, when you start to present to actual people, whether it's just your spouse or small group or whatever, um, it creates the that unpredictable element. So if you you know present to your your buddy or something, have them like ask some questions or interject or make it a little dynamic. Cause I find that if you get really good at just giving your spiel, it's a different skill to be able to kind of pivot and deal with something new, like to actually answer a question. So you could get like totally dialed in and you like recite your aria and then someone's like, yeah, what about uh, uh, Smith at all? And you'd be like, ah, yeah. Cause I, you know, they say you'd never really understand a topic until you can explain it to people. And I think that's the key, right? Is if somebody asks you a question that's not off of your prepared notes, do you understand the topic well enough to answer the question? I mean, sometimes the answer to the question is, Hmm, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I've never encountered that, but I think there's, like you said, there's a skill and an art to being able to answer a question. I don't know without it just sounding like I have done no preparation for this. Yeah. And to be able to say, I don't know, to be able to say in, in some kind of way, 
uh, I'm not the right person to answer that, or that wasn't an actual question, or uh, if someone starts criticizing you what to do, um, this is sort of public speaking skills that are not necessarily about teaching, but you don't want to have to learn them <laughs> at the moment. Right, while you're on stage, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think there's lots we could say about this. Like you said, there's all sorts of, how do you handle the, the, the guy who stands up at the conference to ask a question and pontificates for 10 minutes with no question marks in it at all? Um, you know, to how do you handle feed negative feedback? We could go on and on, but uh, I think I think we've covered the gist of of how to how to prepare and give a oral presentation. Yeah, I, obviously, um, a lot of this overlaps with other types of teaching or presentations you might do, and then there's some specific flavor to this weird uh, species of academic talks. But I think the the big points are, you know. Have something useful to say. Find the right venue for it where people are going to be interested in. Um, get really good at saying it, whatever it is. Um, and then just, you know, find a, I guess, find a role in your life and career for this sort of thing that serves a purpose for you, whether it's a little bit of fun or to somehow advance your career or to not do it at all if that's your thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. 